Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. Before we move into the message in Acts chapter uh, 19, I do want to say uh, a few words about uh, about Independence Day, and that uh, I'm thankful to be in a country uh, to where I can stand here in the pulpit and be able to preach the gospel as the Lord dictates in my conscience, uh, to be able to preach to you faithfully without fear of reprisal uh, from the government or the police or other None of us really had to worry about that uh, this morning in coming uh, to church, as many other countries do not enjoy those freedoms. And one of the things that I think we have to be careful of, and we're actually going to talk a little bit about this uh, within the book of Ephesians today as we start out this new series, um, or about the Ephesian church, uh, is that I think we have to be really uh, careful uh, about elevating the uh, negatives above the work of the Lord in our country. And what we can see is uh, that there are a lot of things. If my wife and I were to sit around and, well, I wouldn't have much to say negative, you know, about her, but she might have a lot to say, hey, you, you know, don't do this or don't do that. She's not that type of person. But if we were to sit and think about the negatives of one another, it'd be a kind of a downer, wouldn't it? But if we sit around and we think about the wonderful things about one another, and I do, as I've told you before, as I think about that first time I laid eyes on her and what that meant to me, I think about the good things. Uh, it makes a difference in how I feel, and it uh, gives some feelings inside that make me want to reach out and to, to love her in the way that she ought to be loved. And I think that's the way we ought to think about our freedoms and the, the things that we have. It's, we're not a perfect country. We certainly understand that. And there's many things that we can pray about and ask the Lord to change and transform in the United States of America. But I still believe, and statistically we know, that the U.S. is one of the greatest senders of missionaries and funding into the world to spread the gospel. And that's something to rejoice over. That's something to celebrate. And that's something to stand firm upon. And we also stand on the shoulders of many who have given their lives, many who have given their health, uh, many who have uh, made, again, that ultimate sacrifice in order that we could stand here and the gospel could be preached faithfully. And however long this window is open for us to do that, let's celebrate that, okay? Let's celebrate what God has given us to be able to preach and proclaim the gospel as freely and as openly as possible and rejoice that we're not in places where the gospel can't be preached freely and openly, which also means that we have a great responsibility. We have a great responsibility to take this season of time and use it for all we can to the glory of God. And we have an urgency to see it happen. Amen. Amen. So we praise the Lord for the freedoms that we enjoy uh, as a people of God and as a country. I was thinking this morning as I was coming in uh, about the Star Spangled Banner and uh, our national anthem. And I was thinking as Francis Scott Key was uh, on a 
ship and in a hold, and he was penning what he was thinking. He was penning that uh, that hymn, and you can you hear the emotion coming out about wondering after all the bombs and all the things going off. Glad that he's hearing bombs bursting through the night because it means there's still fighting going on. Someone is still fighting. Someone is still contending for freedom. And then in the morning, by the dawn's early light, that we still see the flag waving. Uh, what a, a, a beautiful thought uh, for people who were willing to give their life for freedom, not only in that moment, but up until the present moment, uh, we're blessed by people who are willing to give that ultimate sacrifice. And so I celebrate the 4th of July. I put flags up in my yard because I celebrate it. I celebrate what God has done. So let's look at Acts chapter 19. And we're going to read uh, actually a fairly extended portion of Scripture. We are entering into the book of Ephesians and in the series on Ephesians. And, uh, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 19, where the Apostle Paul is actually in the Ephesus church. And so uh, you can read the entire chapter. I'm, I'm leaving out the very end of it uh, to make it somewhat brief, but this is an extended uh, portion of Scripture this morning. And so uh, if you will, uh, stand with me if you're able. If you don't want to be on your feet, you're certainly welcome uh, to, stay, to remain seated. But if you're able to, stand with me uh, to honor the public reading of the word of the Lord. We'll begin at verse 1. It says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak with tongues and prophesying. They were all, there were in all about 12 men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them. So that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. 
Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And that time, about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be disenthroned from her magnificence. When they heard this they, and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hands, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the public reading of scripture today and we rejoice over the power of the spirit that we already sense in our heart is here. And we pray, God, in these next few moments that you will guide us in your word to understand, Lord, what you would have us to know, how you would have us to live and to be faithful before you, Lord Jesus, in this world in which you have placed us. And so we thank you, God, for this opportunity that we have today. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So you'll notice in your bulletin, the plan was to begin right in the book of uh, Ephesians, starting at chapter 1 for our text. But uh, I felt like it would be best for us to go back and look at what the Lord was doing in Ephesians, in the book of Acts, before we actually move into uh, Ephesians itself, and in uh, prayer and in seeking the Lord, I believe this is the plan of God for us uh, today. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is considered one of the prison epistles, and these are letters that Paul wrote while 
he was in prison. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, at least those four uh, were written while Paul was in prison. He was imprisoned uh, on several occasions. In Acts 16, he was imprisoned in Philippi, Acts 21 in Caesarea, and in Acts 28, he was imprisoned in Rome. And so what we know from the Apostle Paul, at least of those three instances of imprisonment, probably more instances of imprisonment in his life, is that he knew what it was to live for Christ during times of hardship. The Apostle Paul was well acquainted with what it meant to live in a difficult season of time, both in in the world system itself, but also personally walking through what it meant for him to actually be in prison. And prison in that day certainly was not like prison in our day. Uh, He wasn't promised, you know, three meals a day or a climate-controlled room or a pillow or any of those things. In fact, whatever he received had to be brought to him by others who were outside of the prison. Most scholars believe that at the time of Paul's writing of the book of Ephesians, that he would have probably been under house arrest in Rome uh, following his appeal to Caesar out of Acts 22 uh, through 26. So the time frame, if you're kind of trying to place the writing of the book of Ephesians, we have Jesus around 30, 33 AD is the crucifixion. The writing of the book of Ephesians is about 30 years later, around A.D. 60, 61, 62, in that range, Paul uh, was martyred for his faith in A.D. 63. We find that Paul, with the help of Priscilla and Aquila, uh, planted the church in Ephesus. And in our reading today, we see that he stayed there at least two years in order to teach and to share the message of hope. As Paul planted the church in Ephesus, it was a very diverse congregation. It was Jews and Gentiles, former idol worshipers, former sorcerers, masters, slaves, or rulers of the city. They were all combined into one church. And when you begin reading through the book of Ephesians, one of the themes that comes through over and over and over again is unity. Because you have all these mixes of different people within the church. And Paul is saying, now as a child of God, we are to have unity in the faith, one another together. We look at Acts 19 and we see what's going on, which was the precursor to the planting of the church in Ephesus. And we see that it started by a very powerful move of God's presence. Paul was visiting the area and found some disciples that were there. He asked them about their experience in the Holy Spirit. They had been baptized. They said the scripture is clear that they were disciples. They had been baptized according to John's baptism for repentance. But Paul wanted them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is referring to uh, water baptism. And then there was this other move or other baptism, and that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we read here in Acts 19 that Paul laid hands upon them, and it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues, and they began prophesying. And there are about 
12 men in all, Scripture tells us. And one of the things we have to think about is that that it doesn't take a lot of people who are sold out to Jesus to shake up a city for the glory of God. It doesn't take a lot of people who are sold out to Jesus to shake up a city for the glory of God. I believe for you and I, one of the things that we ought to think about in our own life is the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. If we're looking specifically at the text, what we see in the text is that they were baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul laid his hands upon them. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. Unfortunately, in our day, particularly those two gifts among uh, some others, but particularly those two gifts have been misused and abused so much that there are those who feel, I have no need in seeking them. I have no need in pursuing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm okay with the Lord. I have made confession of faith and I have no desire to either speak in tongues or to prophesy in that manner. Those are gifts that I don't want. And that's not a biblical perspective. That's not a biblical perspective. In fact, Paul talks to us to desire those gifts. Love must be first, he tells us in Corinthians. But we also ought to desire both the gifts of tongues and of prophecy and of all the other gifts that are available to you and I. Now, in a culture such as ours that is steeped in scientific fact, that can become a little challenging. Because if we can't analyze it through a scientific process, we don't want to believe it. But that was certainly not the Asian mindset, the mindset of Paul, the mindset of the apostles, the mindset of the believers in this day. And so I would encourage you today to pray. I pray in my life for a continued outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God, whatever you have, whatever work you want to do, whatever power you want to display in me, oh God, let it be so for your glory. Whatever it says in Scripture, Lord Jesus, that's what I want working in my life for your glory. After this incident, Paul begins preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and there is this great revival that happens. The Bible says in Acts 19, 11, that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, such that handkerchiefs or aprons that had simply touched Paul could be carried off and laid on a sick person and they would be made well. What type of power is that through the gift and ministry of the Holy Spirit? Those who were sick were healed. Those who had demonic forces, the demons, were cast out. We see in this revival that there was a great confession of sin. Spell books were being burned, and God's word kept growing and prevailing over the darkness. 
When revival breaks out, what you will find is we will begin to experience some things that we're not familiar with. We'll begin to experience some things that you and I may not be quite comfortable with. But what we have to do is to keep our heart in prayer before the Lord. Keep our heart discerning what God is doing. Revival is coming. I believe revival is coming. I believe revival is coming to Riverstone. I believe revival is coming to Charlottesville. I believe revival is coming to our country. I believe revival is coming to our world. Because when I look at our country, when I look at our world, what I see is what we see in Ephesus. And it is ripe for revival. It is ripe for a move of God. I've told you before, and I believe you feel the same way, that if we're people of the book, we believe the book, we believe what the Bible says, we believe the stories of Scripture, our truthful retelling of what happened in the first century and before, if we believe these things, we ought to expect these things. But as we'll see, revival... Revival gets messy. And I'm convinced that we like the idea or the concept of revival. God, revive me. God, do a work. I want to see a miracle. I want to see power. I want to see what's going on. I want to see the signs. I want to see the wonders, God. We want to see that kind of revival. But are we willing to deal with some of the external things that happen as a result of revival. And also, on the other hand, are we willing to do what it takes as a congregation to get to revival? As revival breaks out in Ephesus, there is this great spiritual clash between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Jesus. Now what? So Luke is retelling for us. Luke is the writer of Acts. He's retelling. He's given us history, church history, here in the book of Acts. So he's retelling the story of what went on in Ephesus. And as he's retelling the story, he's hitting the major points of what is going on. And as we read through Acts 19, what we see, wow, this is pretty powerful what is happening. There's people who are being baptized in water. There's people who are being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. They're prophesying. There's people who are learning the gospel. There's this special school that even takes place, and it's a two-year program where people are teaching and preaching and sharing the gospel. And then God is doing these extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul that handkerchiefs and aprons are carried from his body and demons are cast out and people are healed and even the false prophets are being exposed. The demons are getting all over even the false prophets. It's very evident. And there's this repentance that takes place. People are actually confessing their sins publicly. They're bringing their sorcery books. They're bringing their spell books. And they're burning them even though they cost so much money. So what happens in that moment? Culture begins to change. So Ephesus was the primary place of worship for Artemis. Who was this goddess kind of, of of all life and her temple was placed in Ephesus 
And so there was this economic activity that was going on in the city. And so you have this union of silversmiths and of idol makers who come along and they are making their idols. And so if you really want to be close to Artemis and you want Artemis's favor in your life and you want Artemis to work and to bless you and to give you children and to bless your children and to bless your livestock and to bless your plantings because she's the goddess of all life. If you really want these things, you're going to have your idol even in your house. And so Demetrius was one of the silversmiths, and so he makes idols out of silver. Now, I don't know even how much my watches were. It was a gift from my brother. But let's say it's worth 10 bucks. And let's say the watch is worth 10 bucks in its value. If we were to melt it down and all the summation of its parts, about 10 bucks. But now if we were to say that someone really famous and special had wore the watch, we were to say someone that we all knew, someone that the whole world knew and revered that had wore the watch. Well, then we've seen it happen. They put them up for auction and they go for millions and millions of dollars. Clothes that famous actors or actresses have, have wore uh, uh, pieces of jewelry that someone else has had. It's not the value of the item itself. It becomes the value of who wore it. It's special. It's different. It's unique. And so Demetrius was taking what he spends a little money on, and he was saying, you need this to get close to God. And though the value might be worth a couple coins in its summation, Demetrius was much overcharging and making a pretty good living along with the others in his union and the other idol worshipers. He was making a pretty good living at selling these idols. And so when Paul comes and Paul begins preaching, and Paul begins teaching, and Paul begins sharing, and then people find out Artemis really isn't a god at all. Artemis has no control over me. I don't have to do anything to get to Artemis. I don't have to do anything to earn favor from Artemis. There's only one God, and his name is Jesus, and I can search after him, and he will give me everything that I need in my life. I don't have to go buy these silly idols anymore. Well, what does it do? In Ephesus, it throws the entire city into economic confusion. See, as long as you and I are here praising Jesus in the church walls, and it doesn't impact people out there, we're not a big threat at all. But once we start messing with people's money, that's when things can get kind of rough and challenging. And that's exactly what happens. The revival's moving, the revival's going, the revival's happening, and then it begins to change culture. People become transformed, and what they used to do, they're no longer doing. The things that they used to look to in order for their health and their happiness and wisdom and understanding, all of those things have now been cast aside, and they find wholeness and purpose in God's Word. Culture is changed, and now there is a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. 
Satan's fine with you and I right here in this square footage. Keep your faith to yourself. Keep it in this room. Don't walk it out. Don't talk it in school. Don't talk it at your workplace. Don't talk it in public. Don't talk it on the street. You're bothering me. You're in my space. Don't talk it outside of here. Keep it right here. Religion is a private matter. But when Paul comes along and Paul begins preaching, and Aunt so-and-so who was sick and about to die and somebody comes and puts a handkerchief on her from a gospel preacher man and she raises up and now she's healed, something begins to change. And when so-and-so who was off, who was demonic possessed and somebody gets a handkerchief off of Paul and lays it on that person and the demon comes out and there's a transformation, something changes. And it begins not just to change the people who are in on the inside, it changes what's going on on the outside. I think it's the enemy's desire for us to sit back and theologically debate and think about, oh, brother, I think that the Greek word for uh, miracles and signs and wonders, I think it's nothing so. And, and, you know, these miracles and signs, they cease. They stopped in the first century, and we shouldn't seek after those things. We shouldn't think about those things. The theological implications of that are things can kind of get out of control. And I will come again and say, show it to me in the book. Show it to me. Show it to me in the book. Show it to me in the book. I realize there's dry seasons. You know what? I realized there were dry seasons. Between the Old Testament and New Testament, 400 years. 400 years, there wasn't a whole lot happening. I realize there are dry seasons, but I also know when those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be filled. If you and I are willing, 12 of us, the 12 of us are willing to say, hey, we're going to bind together, and no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, we're going to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We're going to believe the book. We're going to seek the book. Whatever God brings, whatever God does, whatever God wants to do, we're going to let him do it. Whatever he wants to do, we're going to allow to happen. You change the culture. You change the culture. Culture was changed. People were no longer buying demonic trinkets at inflated prices. Those who made the trinkets lost money. They opposed the biblical truth and the power of the Holy Spirit in order to maintain their economic superiority. And the Bible says there was no small disturbance. They rioted and they blamed it on the Christians. And people tried to reason with them. They didn't listen. You couldn't reason with them. They just exclaimed the same thing over and over and over again. So much so, they go in the theater and they don't stop for two hours saying the same thing. Louder and louder and louder and louder. Now, have you turned on your TV lately? Have you? Listen to what's going on in our culture because it is Ephesus redo. They just say the same thing louder and louder and louder and louder. And when you now go to your college admission, you get to pick your own pronouns. Foolishness. Foolishness. And they just say it louder and louder and louder and louder. And here's the word that I often hear 
that because we stand upon biblical truth that we hate. And I want to say I've been part of this fellowship for two years. I don't sense hate anywhere. In fact, one of the primary things that I hear when people come in this room from out on the street, from wherever they want to come from, from whatever kind of lifestyle they want to come from, is I felt loved. I felt cared for. I felt like someone I couldn't get to my seat without shaking 50 hands. Because God will transform. I can respect the image of God in any human being. I will respect the image of God in any human being, but I will continue to preach the gospel faithfully according to his word. And because I respect the image of God in every human being, I want to see people come out of some things that are binding them up. They keep shouting over and over, great as Artemis, great as Artemis, great as Artemis of the Ephesians over two hours. They don't stop and the government has to intervene. So the clerk comes in and he tries to quiet the group down. And this is what he does. Again, apply it to our day. This is what he does. He says, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Who doesn't know this? Who doesn't believe like we believe? It is a small minority of people. But everyone else believes like we believe. Everyone else believes that Artemis is the goddess of the Ephesians, that our temple is here, and that through miraculous, this is what they believe, through miraculous intervention, that a piece of wood fell from heaven and dropped to the earth in her image. And so we worship that. Who doesn't believe that? You see what happens? These Christians are foolish because they don't believe what we all know is true. They don't accept what we all know is true. When we look at this <clears throat> revival in Ephesus, a few quick points. The Ephesian revival, as I've already stated, began with a small group of repentant people living in the power of the Holy Spirit. In verses 8 to 10, the Ephesian revival was sustained by consistent biblical teaching among unified believers. In verses 11 through 12, thirdly, the Ephesian revival was affirmed by the miraculous power of God at work among God's people. And the Ephesian revival was culture changing in the city of Ephesus. Now, indeed, there was a counterfeit. We saw that with Sceva and the seven sons. <clears throat> but we see because of the culture change in this revival, that there was great repentance. People were changed. People were transformed. <clears throat> Acts chapter 19 concludes in about five years after Acts chapter 19 is when the apostle Paul 
writes the letter to the Ephesian church. So you've got Acts chapter 19, five years passes, then we go to the epistle written to the Ephesians and his concern for the church and what is going on at the church and for the way that they're living out the gospel based upon the revival that brought them into the kingdom. And then finally, you fast forward 40 more years to the book of Revelation. And Ephesians is mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. Thank you, brother. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, Ephesians is mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I want you to hear what's happened about 43, 45-ish years after this revival. The Lord Jesus speaks directly to the church of Ephesus. And he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Now the angel here in, uh, in the book of Revelation, particularly in these areas where it's speaking of an angel, normally that would be a a reference to or uh, a point to the leader, the primary leader, maybe what we would consider a pastor or someone in Ephesus. But to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, now that is a reference to Jesus. Verse 2, church in Ephesus, I I, Jesus, know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Now, just a quick primer, and I'll conclude. Revivals often break out among God's people. God's people get hungry like we're hungry. I think we're a hungry people. God's people get hungry. God answers, and an abundance pours out His Spirit upon His people. He begins to transform culture, and what we will begin to see is we will begin to see a clash between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. That's what we must be ready and prepared for. We see God's spirit being poured out as culture begins to change. Culture will more radically come against us. And we'll live and we'll persevere and we'll fight in that. And that's exactly what the Ephesians did. And then what happened is the Ephesians began to routinize it. They begin to categorize it. They begin to try to push it all together and to keep it all line upon line, just like we, this is exactly like what we want. This is exactly how it has to be. Same thing every single time. We're going to do it exactly the same way. We're going to do this. If you want to lead in art, you're going to go A, B, C, and D every single time. We're going to get, we're going to sing three songs every Sunday morning. We're going to do the offering directly after that. We're going to have a message and it's going to last this long and we're going to be out by this time. It's going to, this is what is going to to happen. And Jesus said, you left your first law. You're not willing to allow me through the power of the Spirit to move in your midst. 
You're not willing to allow me to come in. You've, you've left me, and you put all these building blocks together in order to make this something that you can control. But if we can control it, it's not revival, and it's not culture transformation, and it's not people transformation. I want to prepare you. I want to prepare myself. I want to help us see that what we're on the cusp of, what we're looking to, what we're, what we're peering in the future at is something that we can't control. No, we will be biblical. We'll stand upon the word. We'll evaluate upon the word, but we can't evaluate upon our own traditions and upon our own human understanding. We can't evaluate upon what we've learned by uncle so-and-so at a church back there or back there, back there, back there, back there. We have to evaluate based upon God's word and his power and his mind. And what does his word say? The Ephesians had left their first love within 40 years of that revival. And so this is a context in which the apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church. And I believe this is a timely word. I had not planned normally in November, December, I begin planning out a sermon calendar for the next year and where God will lead us. And I pray about it and I ask the Lord. And this, this wasn't on that calendar for this year, but I believe it's where God wants to take us for where he is leading us. So let's stand, let's pray together. Let's seek him.